ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, this is The Money. Richard Aidy with you. You'll hear a bit about plumbing today, the plumbing that underpins Australia's payment system, and a bit about jostling as well, because China wants its currency, the yuan, to be one of the world's reserves. Let's start with the pie and who's getting what. As you know, for most things you buy, you pay GST to the federal government. But the Commonwealth doesn't keep that money. Instead, the revenue is distributed to the states. And Professor Bob Brunick, who thinks about tax for a living, says at the moment, one state in particular is getting more than its fair share of pie. Yeah, so the the problem at the moment is that in was it 2018, we made a special deal uh, with Western Australia to give them, in some ways, more than their fair share of GST revenue. The way that the GST works is it's gathered by the federal government, but it's given back to the states. And it's given to the states in proportion to their need. And we look at states' ability to raise revenue, and we look at uh, states' expenditure. So we're looking both at the revenue side and the expenditure side. So when we think about the revenue side, we think about state royalties. When we think about the expenditure side, we think about like how difficult is it to provide services to your population? How spread out are they? Um, how much land mass does your state have? Are there any extreme weather conditions that your state has to deal with? And then what we do is we distribute the money in a way that gives states uh, an equal ability to provide services to their citizens. What's happened because of the huge increase in royalties that Western Australia has gotten because of the mining boom is that based on the formula that we use, uh, Western Australia was getting a, a pretty small distribution of GST revenues on the basis that they didn't need it. And so there was unfortunately very a political attempt to curry favor with voters in Western Australia by saying, okay, you know, Western Australia will negotiate a special deal for you. At first blush, you might say, oh, Western Australia has lots of royalties, so, you know, they should they should be able to have more money. But, you know, the problem with that, I guess, is, is twofold. One is we've always treated the resources in this country as belonging to all Australians. So even though the states are the ones who charge royalties, we've always redistributed that money through the Commonwealth Grants Commission process to make sure that every Australian was better off because of that money. This undermines that. Mm. This also undermines what really is kind of a world-leading way of dealing with these two problems of vertical and horizontal fiscal imbalance. Other countries look to us and say, oh, we wish we could be like Australia. We wish we could do what they do. They have a very apolitical process, a very fair process, a process that seems to work very well. Unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to get that back because right. now we put it we put it into the realm of something you can play around with politics. So at the time, this is 2018, we had Scott Morrison, then Treasurer, uh, Mark McGowan, then Premier, both have moved on. At the time, it was anticipated that the iron ore price would fall. And at the time that the formula established by the Commonwealth Grants Commission meant that WA was getting, I think, 45% of what it would have had if, if it had received all the GST collected from its citizens, because as you said, it was doing pretty well. And what that deal did was it put a floor. It basically meant it had to be 70%, and it's going to climb, I think, to 75% in 2024 25 That's right. It's climbing to 75% next year. And it had fallen uh, It had fallen below 50%. It had fallen to, to 45%. Mm. 
and and that is unusual historically. So generally, uh, what's happened most of the time through the 90s and, and up through about 2010 is that Victoria and New South Wales, who have been the wealthier states, probably because they have higher property prices and they've had a lot of stamp duty revenue, they've generally given uh, GST revenue to the other states. They give a lot to the Northern Territory. They give a fair bit to Tasmania and then uh, lower amounts to South Australia, ACT, Queensland, and WA. And WA didn't complain back in the day when they were getting more than $1 of every, for every dollar of GST that they, they paid. Um, they only started complaining when, when that went down. How much is it costing? Because I think the deal was that no one was going to be worse off because WA was going to be better off, this sort of magic pudding approach. Essentially, it means that the taxpayer makes up the difference. How much is it costing us and how much is it projected to cost us, Bob? So I think the original projections were that it was going to cost about $200 million. I think it's now costing us more than $4 billion because, as you've said, uh, resource prices have continued to be very, very high. And, uh, and, and so the royalty take that WA has is very, very large, uh, and therefore uh, their share according to the standard formula remains uh, only at about, about 50% of what they pay in GST. And I'm, I'm glad you used the word magic pudding because when you say no one's worse off and we're just gonna top up the states, you know, as your listeners well know, there's no bucket of money hidden behind Parliament House that just magically refills. This is money that is coming from other Commonwealth taxes. This is coming from the personal income taxes that we pay. It's recycling money, but I think to say that no one's uh, not worse off is is indeed a, a bit farcical. Not only that, I was reading that this this is actually, because it's growing, it's actually growing faster than the cost of the NDS. NDIS is growing. It's it's growing at this phenomenal speed, which which was genuinely not anticipated when it was set up. Forecasting what resources prices are going to be in the future is a good way to make yourself look foolish. But it does seem that, that resource prices at some point have to cool off and then the cost of this will go down. This guarantee of not making anybody else worse off actually expires in 2026-27. And so at that point, the federal government could decide that it's it's not going to guarantee that, that no one is worse off, or it could uh, decide to go back to the old arrangement and, mm. and get rid of the special deal for Western Australia. And I, I think that's what what Jim Chalmers has said as well, is that he doesn't, he doesn't really want to look at it until then. But at that point, whoever's in, in government will have to look at it. There will be no choice. Well, I'm not surprised he doesn't want to look at it because when this was arranged uh, by Scott Morrison, then Treasurer, the federal opposition, now the government, ra- raised not, not one cry of, of opposition to this. They, they let it go through. Yeah. And again, I, I think, unfortunately, you know, that's just the nature of politics. You know, Labour didn't want to put Western Australian voters offside either. Where is the constituency for strong institutions that help our federal government uh, and states work together? You know, no one's going to protest on Parliament House for that. And yet we should, because it's a really important part of our entire system. I suppose the polity in WA is about the state's exceptionalism. You don't have to spend much time there, actually, to, to be told that you're an Eastern Stater, and that is not an affectionate term, and that the state is different to other places in Australia. And, of course, they do have this enormous mineral wealth, and they do collect uh, the royalties on that. So they think they're already basically subsidising Australia as it is. In, indeed, that is that is the Western Australian point of view. It, it's, it's a spectacular state. Uh, I spent a month in the Kimberley in 2021 uh, camping and uh, 
I was I was very charmed by Western Australia, and every every time I go to Perth, I'm struck at what a beautiful city is, but also at how far away they are from the rest of Australia. Um, I think people in Perth are closer to Singapore or Jakarta than they are to Sydney or Melbourne, and and maybe that does I guess I guess breed uh, a, a, an independent spirit. The, the reality in any federal system, though, is that at one point or another, different people are going to be in need. Other people are going to be doing well. If you just think about how our you know, tax and transfer system works, right? If you're doing well and you're making money, we take taxes from you. We give some of that money to people who are doing less well. When you're doing less well, we give you some support, um, whether it's through uh, unemployment payments or public education or healthcare, and then other people who are doing well pay for you. For much of the history of Australia, Western Australia has actually received grants from the rest of, of the country. Um, so before we had the Commonwealth Grants Commission process, we had a basically a special grants program in states that uh, had needs that were greater than than other states and had an inability to raise revenue could apply for a, a special grant. And, and for 50 years, Western Australia got those special grants. So I think there is a sense in which they should also say, okay, you know, when times were hard for us, we got a lot of help from the East. Now we're doing really well. We should be helping out the East, but but of course it's it's easier to say that uh, than it is to actually do it. Mm-hmm. And and I should I guess the other thing I would say is that the you know if you go to Canada I think you would you would find the same thing. So if you if you go out to Manitoba or some of the Western provinces, they will complain at great length about how all of their agricultural and mineral wealth is is being squandered on the uh, lazy unemployed people in the Eastern Maritime provinces. So this is not a problem that's unique to Australia. No. It is worth talking about, though, Bob, and thank you very much for bringing it to our attention. Thank you, Richard. Bob Brunig is the director of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute in the Crawford School at the ANU. may not have noticed it, but things are stirring. There's some positioning going on in the international currency markets. China wants the yuan to be a reserve currency. Tugi Chulun is an associate professor of finance at Loyola University in Maryland. Tugi, we'll get into what's going on here, but I want to start by having you tell us what a reserve currency is. So a reserve currency is essentially just a large amount of currency that's held by central banks and other financial institutions. And for a currency to be a reserve currency, it needs to be obviously stable, safe, and it needs to be a medium of exchange, a store of value. But above all, it needs to be widely accepted and trusted. So this implies then trust in the economy and institutions Mm. that stand behind the currency is really important. Just to give you a sense of where the numbers are, dollar accounts for about 60% of world currency reserves, and the euro comes at the second place with about 20% share. So what advantage does America have, say, by having its currency serve almost as a de facto world reserve? So when your currency is widely held as a reserve currency and used for international trade and investment uh, and all kinds of transactions, there are significant benefits. As you can imagine, so this means that U.S. companies and consumers will not have to convert currencies as much as people from other countries need to. So they will be exposed to less 
foreign currency or foreign exchange transaction costs and also exchange rate risk. But above all, really what the biggest benefit to U.S. is that when other nations uh, want to hold your currency as a reserve, there's a lot of demand for your currency. So this means that U.S. government or firms or consumers, they can borrow easily and cheaply. So that's probably the biggest or the most important benefit of having your currency be the, the dominant reserve currency in the world. Why is that U.S. dollar slightly under scrutiny, or at least there's some movement away? The concern about U.S. dollar dominant position, that's not new. What I think brought this concern to the forefront was, A, the dollar becoming very strong uh, and appreciating against other currencies in 2022, and then this dollar weaponization. So after Russia invaded Ukraine in early 2022, the U.S. and its allies put sanctions on, on Russia. So this included cutting Russia's access to that uh, global dollar-based payment system, really alienating that country. So what this did was that it showed that dollar can be weaponized, that it can be used as a political weapon. So I think this made countries to renew their search for ways to lower their dependence on the dollar. But I suppose... The U.S. hasn't been helping itself in some ways because it's got this very polarized pol- politics. It's just gone through all this business with the debt ceiling and debt default. It's had very high interest rates. It's not been helping itself. Absolutely agree with that. As we mentioned before, you know, for a currency to be reserve currency, there has to be trust in the currency. That means there has to be trust in the institutions that stand behind the currency. So, um, you know, with the recent drama over the debt ceiling, uh, for instance, it just shows that how uh, U.S. institutions can be weak at times. So absolutely. Uh, But another thing you mentioned about dollar being very strong, for example, throughout 2022, U.S. dollar has appreciated significantly against most other currencies. Mm. So what that means is, and as you mentioned, that's related to the Fed raising their interest rates. So this had negative consequences for people of pretty much almost any country that either has to borrow in dollars or have to pay for imports in dollars or they have to pay for commodities that are priced in dollars because these transactions now become more expensive. So people and countries have started looking for ways to lower their reliance on dollar. You mentioned China. What has China done Mm -hmm. recently to challenge that dominance of the US dollar? China has long wanted to make their currency global currency. So they have taken many steps. For example, they launched their own cross-border interbank payment system. So this is to facilitate cross-border payments in yuan. They created contracts that will allow exporters to sell oil in yuan. They have emerged essentially the world's largest creditor uh, with their government and their state-controlled enterprises, extending loans to dozens of developing countries. They are developing a digital yuan as one of the world's first central bank digital currencies. So there are many things that I can mention. Of course, all of this doesn't mean much unless other countries are are willing to use the yuan. So which countries are helping China with those efforts? Russia has significantly increased its uh, use of yuan. In fact, I believe the latest statistics show that the yuan is now the most traded currency in Russia. So Russia and its use of yuan is getting a lot of attention, but we're increasingly seeing some 
examples of countries uh, such as Bangladesh or even you know developed economies like France or some companies from for example UK are leaning towards yuan in for some transactions mm. if you count up or if you look at the combined dollar amount of these transactions it's still relatively small but it's that shift to yuan it's that sentiment that is very significant you mentioned before that the the yuan's use in trade as a reserve currency has increased increased a lot how does it compare to the us dollar and and the euro come to that so if you look at statistics the yuan is now used as a more as a reserve currency but if you actually look at the share hmm. of that uh, world foreign exchange reserves it's only 3% so you will see lots of attention given to rankings so if you look at rankings yuan has made some tremendous strides so yuan is now the fifth most traded currency in the world so we're hmm. talking about just like foreign exchange transactions so this is an incredible rise for a currency that was at 35th place back in 2001. And if you look at currencies that are used for global payments, yuan is also now the fifth most actively used currency. But that's ranking. But if you actually look at the share, the share of yuan is actually quite small. So what is holding the yuan and indeed China back? I mean, if you think about it, China's it's the largest exporter in the world. It's the world's largest creditor, which you've mentioned, second biggest economy. Despite the progress that's been made since 2001, it's still really lagging a long way back in terms of becoming a major global currency. So what's really holding China from, uh, or the Chinese yuan from becoming a truly global currency is that it's not freely available. It's uh, the markets, as you know, Chinese markets are still not fully liberalized. Mm. Chinese government keeps tight capital control, and then there's a limited transparency in Chinese financial markets. All of that means is that China still lacks that uh, free financial markets that are required to make the yuan a major global currencies. And as I understand it, the value of the yuan is determined really by the the government, the Communist Party of China, rather than market forces. Uh, Yes, you're correct that, um, you know, China... Chinese yuan, the exchange rate of Chinese yuan is not freely, it's not completely determined by market forces. So it's a combination of market forces and the government control. So yes, that could be one of the factors too. So if China does succeed in making yuan uh, more and more of of a competitor with the US dollar, is that, I suppose, the outcome that you see? Or do you, or can you see it actually overtaking the US dollar as the dominant global reserve currency? I don't think we're really talking about the yuan overtaking the U.S. dollar. I think we are um, now talking about possible scenario where the um, yuan joins the ranks of the dollar and the euro, and the world will have a few major currencies with dollar being not so prominent. So instead of a dollar reigning supreme alone, as it essentially does today, we're heading to a world with, with a few major currencies with Yuan being one of them. So this all points to that multipolar world. Togi Chulun from the Loyola University in Maryland. The Albanese government's to update the regulation of the payment system. This is something you probably don't think about because it rarely asks you to. But if you slot your card into a reader at the supermarket, you get a choice of FPOS, check or credit. They all take money from you, but they're different. That is one corner of the payment system. And the regulations that govern it 
are out of date. Kevin Davis is from the University of Melbourne. Well, payment system underpins the entire economy, basically. It's the the way in which uh, value is transferred from one person to another uh, to pay for purchases of goods and services or to make gifts or all other sorts of things. So every time we buy a coffee or lunch or there's a direct debit or we put something even on buy now, pay later, we make a payment. Exactly. And uh, in a sense, there's one sort of important separation, and that's between notes and coins where you physically hand over something of value or uh, a system whereby instructions are passed from one person to another through that payment system to effect an exchange of value. That must be the much bigger part of it, though, these days. The, it the, is. Oh, you know, notes and coins are trivial. I read, I think in the paper, it might have been the Fin the other day, that there's 55 million payments a day worth about $650 million. I don't have the numbers in front of me, I'm afraid, Richard, but uh, uh, there's lots of noughts on the end. I think that's probably the most uh, relevant thing. We'll go with that technical term. So the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is going to modernise the payment system. What is essentially wrong with it now? Essentially what we've got is a payment system that's evolved over time, reflecting historical technology and mechanisms and so on. And we all know that technology has evolved dramatically Uh, And there's also all sorts of new innovations, including things like cryptocurrencies and so on, which is another aspect of a potential payment system. So there's a need to update the way in which the system operates, the powers that the regulators, the Reserve Bank and the government have uh, to take into account all of the new entrants into a, a payment system. For example, cryptocurrency is not regulated. I think cryptocurrency is a waste of time, to be quite honest. But nevertheless, that is a payment system uh, and some people are using it. So the government needs to have appropriate powers to regulate it, to make sure that there's no swindling, uh, there's no scams, that there's no cyber threats and so on. So there's a lot of, lot of work to be done. Mm. I think that the regulations that we kind of currently have were written at a time when most people still wrote checks, when we didn't have smartphones at all. And I think we've ended up with five different payments regulators working in their own silos with limited mandates. I think that's true. Uh, I was on the uh, the Murray Inquiry, the Australian Financial System Inquiry, back in 2014. And one of the things we looked at was the need to modify some of the legislation that said certain transactions could only be affected by cheque. And that just seemed, even at that time, a very silly way of uh, specifying uh, the, the legislation. How much of this has been partly forced by the, it seems to me, profound technological change that that many of us are now using the phone to pay for things. As I said, there's been an evolution of technology, methods of making payments and so on, and we need to update our regulation. Regulation always falls behind what's going on in in the world. And so we need to update the regulation and the legislation, in a sense, to catch up. Uh, with the innovations that are occurring uh, in in the economy. Actually, just looking at it while you speak, the value of transactions on smartphones in 2018 was $746 million and last year it was $93 billion. That's, That's astonishing. So this might seem like a dumb question, Kevin, but why is it important? If I buy something with, say, Apple Pay, that just accesses my bank account which is already regulated. What what else needs to be done here? I think it's perhaps important if I sort of backtrack a little bit and just describe what happens in a payment system. Uh, a payment system is a mechanism for the exchange of value between two parties. 
And we often think of it as exchange of money, but it could be any value that is being exchanged between two parties. It could be my bank account, the money in my bank account or the the entry in my bank account, which is being uh, used. It could be, for example, uh, the credit on my Mikey, our transport card here in Melbourne. That doesn't happen at the moment, but it could. It could be any store of value that is being transferred. And of course, what's happening again through innovation is all sorts of different stores of value in addition to bank deposits, which have been the mainstay up until now. Then to actually make that uh, transfer of value, we have to use some instrument. Nowadays, the instrument is our mobile phone or a plastic card. And we take that and we do something with it, which then sends a signal through a whole lot of plumbing to be received by another participant who will then credit that value to someone else. So there's a whole lot of steps in the process. So there's a whole range of players in the system uh, and the regulation needs to take account of that and, of course, the fact that they're not all the same party in all stages. I suppose with the phone too, the concern would be that the phone operating system acts as a gatekeeper. So if Apple or Android, which are the two biggies, of course want to enable this, but they can also say, well, we want a cut and we want the cut to be this much, or we don't particularly think that you're worth our while. We're not going to put you, small credit union, into this system. I suppose it's being able to regulate how the phone operating systems are in there too. That's certainly the case. So the question of allowing uh, equitable and fair competition and efficiency is a critical one in the, the strategic review of the payment system that the government's undertaking. So, so the payment system is another one of those cases of, of society where there's a network involved and whoever's running that network, uh, we have to be sure that they give access on fair and reasonable terms to anyone who is appropriate to be involved in it. Right. This gets us, I think, to fintechs because nearly 40%, 38%, I think is the number of fintechs, are actually payments providers. So it's how they're regulated and how it all fits into the ecosystem, that's part of these changes as well. Oh, it is definitely the case. Uh, Fintechs, not just around Australia, but around the world, are coming up with new types of products, new types of services and so on, which can create value by reducing the costs of affecting these transactions. I mean, remember that a large part of what the government is trying to do is to make sure that the whole payment system is cost efficient. Uh, having to use checks and then have the check trans... I mean, if I get a check, I get really annoyed because I've then got to wander off down mm. to my bank to actually deposit the thing. It's the last thing I want to do is to receive a check. So trying to reduce the both just the, the costs to individuals or businesses, but also the costs associated with the technology of transferring the value through the system uh, is very important. I can still remember when I first got my, my first checkbook. It was kind of a rite of passage into adulthood a long time ago. But checks will be gone by 2030 at the latest. That's one of the things that we know. Uh, that's certainly what the, uh, the Treasurer has suggested, and I think that's highly likely. Checks are used by a very small number of people uh, or businesses for a very small number of transactions. One of the biggest uses of checks in more recent times used to be when you were buying a house and there had to be a transfer of, of money at the same time that there was transfer of ownership. So people from both sides of the transaction get together and they, uh, they used to look at the checks and make sure the checks were valid and they'd have to be bank checks, so it was mm. a guarantee of payment. And then they'd hand across and, and sign and so on the title to the property as well as receiving the checks. 
Now, of course, there's been one major innovation there, PEXA, Property Exchange of Australia, I think is the name, Mm. which now does it all electronically. Well, I suppose in in addressing issues like that, it is something we'll be aware of. But it occurs to me that most of this is going to happen kind of underwater, as it were. We'll keep using the payment system and we won't really notice that these changes have happened. I think that's certainly the case. I've taught stuff about payment systems in one of my university classes and most of the students uh, weren't really aware of the extent of what's involved, the plumbing that underlies it. And of course, there's different sets of plumbing uh, and each of them involving uh, different costs and different profits to the operators. And on, on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us today. No trouble at all, Richard. Kevin Davis is Emeritus Professor of Finance at the University of Melbourne. And that's about it for now on The Money. Next time, we will look at the problem with 15%. This is the number, the internationally agreed figure, for a minimum tax rate on business. And it could really deliver, just not for us here in Australia. The Money comes to you from Gadigal Land. It's produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidey. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 